This sermon is from Grace Fellowship Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. To access other sermons or to learn more about us, please visit our website at graceedmonton.ca. Well, good afternoon, beloved. Okay, so we're getting hectic, so I'm going to have to watch my volume, but welcome once again, everyone, back to uh, Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, it's a pleasure to see everyone uh, back again and hoping that everyone had a, a blessed week. Uh, I was joking uh, with Shane before this service that uh, in preparation to preach this text and to, uh, um, practically and also uh, just as in, in way of study, uh, I've been getting uh, pretty beaten up by this text and I'm just happy I get to share that with you guys and if you guys can partake in those meetings with me. Uh, so last week, uh, Shane preached uh, and he concluded with the verses uh, 35 and 37 um, and if you remember, this is where Christ sat down uh, with his disciples and he rebuked them. Uh, for the conversation uh, about them establishing their supremacy. It was, a, it was a sermon on pride. After descending from the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, earlier on in Mark 9, uh, the disciples were witness, uh, witnesses to more of Christ's amazing miracles in his teaching. And as we progress through the um, uh, chapter of Mark 9, this wasn't the main concern of the disciples. Remember, we, Shane preached on pride. Their main concern wasn't the Mount of Transfiguration, or the teaching, or the, the, the things that they had been witness to. No, instead, however, their main concern wasn't on these miraculous things, but on scoring, on fo- they were focused on scoring points and leaderboards within the kingdom of God. So, as we see in today's text, as uh, our brother Ty has read, thank you, brother, um, Jesus is going to conclude his, his teachings on pride. He's going to finish his final corrections and rebuke with the disciples. Um, and he's going to do so uh, dealing with pride and sin with gruesome and grotesque hyperbole. Um, and he's also going to give us a haunting depiction of hell itself. But, being the loving shepherd that he is, he's not going to leave us there. He's going to leave us with loving direction on how we can, through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, master the sin of pride and submit to the loving guidance of Jesus Christ. So, like Ty said, and he read, um, our text aims today. Uh, the main focus of the text is that it shows, it demonstrates the reality and the danger of sinful pride while instructing us with the method that he gives, the, the prescription that Christ himself gives, with humble service. That is how we are to overcome this spiritual pride. But before we even get to the text, we... Um, this is, this is a test of self-examination. This is a text that we bring to bear on our own souls, and we beg the question, just how true is it that how wicked the human heart is sometimes? Before we laugh, and before we mock the disciples for their arrogance and their, their rash decisions, uh, try not to hold your breath too quickly. Uh, but think about this. How prideful is any one of us? Like I said, in preparation for this text, I think I received a very cold dose of reality uh, with this text about the, the dangers of spiritual pride, of the pain that, that, that spiritual pride brings, and the pain and, and the dangers of that sin. When the veil of arrogance sheds itself, and we reveal just how much pride we inwardly all have, uh, I most included in this list, uh, how we carry that in our hearts, this uh, disguised as piety or righteousness. It's, it's a veil of, of lies. I'm going to pick on the kids today because this is, this is a text that uh, the kids 
are going to are going to understand probably a little bit more than the adults just from the visual nature of this of this passage. Uh, I came across this little quote, so I'm going to ask you guys to remember this. And this is a neat little quote that we're going to. Uh, if you're going to remember one thing, it's going to be this, okay? Uh, and the quote is this. So just as I is found in the middle of sin, the letter I, so is the letter I found in the middle of pride. We cannot divide these two. These two go together. Okay, so without further ado, let's, uh, let's pray first and foremost. Father, uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father, that you don't treat us according to our sin. Lord, that you are merciful. You're merciful to a lost and prideful people. How often are we reminded of the graces and the riches of Christ, and yet, Father, we turn so quickly. We return back to the filth of man, the filth of, of this world, Lord, and we pursue these things as opposed to the righteousness, the virtue, and the goodness of the Lord. Oh, Father, were it not for the love that you give, Lord, we would be as chaff, Lord, burnt up and consumed by the, your very judgment. Father, I ask, purify us, Lord, purify our hearts and our minds, Lord, with ears ready to hear and eyes ready to, to receive, Lord, what it is you have to give. Lord, that every man, woman, and child within this room, Father, knows hearing, Father, would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and see him fully. Help me, Father, as I preach this text, the weight and just the awesome sheer value of this text, and help us as we study this. In our Redeemer's name, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, uh, beginning on our text, like, uh, like I said, we are back in Mark 9. Um, we're reading from verses uh, 38 uh, to 41. Um, and if you, if you notice, if you're very observant, um, we're, we're treated with a little bit of a, different, um, a difference in this text uh, than we usually, we're used to seeing in the Gospels. Um, in, in our text, verse 30 actually opens up with John speaking. Uh, and this is interesting only because um, this is the single time in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that John is the one to speak up. Usually we're used to seeing Peter speak up, and, um, and we, we know that that happens often. But interestingly enough, John is the one who speaks, uh, and what he says is really quite interesting. So while we look at our text, uh, this is our first point. Be careful not to overcorrect, for those of you taking notes. Be careful not to overcorrect. And that's in the, verses 38 and 41, it says this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for, we, uh, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you the cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So as the text goes, verse 38, we see the disciples. John speaks up, uh, but you see the disciples rebuked uh, this anonymous uh, exorcist or, uh, for, um, for performing these duties in the name of Christ. He was casting out demons, and he was doing it in the name of Christ. Um, and if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, the, there's, there's textual variance here, but um, we're going to rely on these today in, the, in our text because there's a lot of context that goes into this. Um, in, our, in one of these, uh, the footnotes, it says, if you have an ESV, it says, those who do not follow us. That's added right at the bottom there, if you have that. This little statement adds uh, some crucial context, indicating that this lowly servant uh, wasn't just an unknown servant in, in the kingdom that had heard Jesus' teachings at some point, but he wasn't one of the disciples. 
Specifically, he wasn't part of this in-crowd that the, the disciples, this elite group that the disciples believed themselves to be. And because of this, because he would not follow them, or follow us, as John says, they rebuked him. They prohibited him from speaking the name of Christ and casting out demons. And I mentioned it at the top of the sermon, but Jesus rebuked the disciples for quarreling and trying to establish a pecking order. Again, in verses 35 to 38, or 37. So it's it's likely it's likely that this response from John comes as a def, as a as a defensive response. He's he's becoming defensive to the rebuke that Jesus Christ already rendered. And in other words, he's trying to defend his zeal or self-righteousness or enthusiasm for Christ by bringing this forward. Not only were they caught discussing a pecking order, establishing um, leaders and followers amongst the servants of Christ. At this point, they pivot again, and they over-pivot, and they overcorrect. Again, those words, who, who does not follow us, or who, who do not follow us. We can gather from the, this short little phrase that the disciples felt as though they were delegates for Christ that could speak for him. So in other words, they were like his gatekeepers hoping that Jesus would commend them in their arrogance, in their rash response. They believed that they were doing what was right. Jesus does the opposite. Verse 39 says, and, But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to, uh, soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. As is a trend now, Jesus corrects the disciples. So instead of condoning their behavior, Jesus rebukes them, and he corrects them, and he instructs them not to prohibit the work of another brother. So from verse 38, it's clear that this man is a true disciple of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, Therefore, I'll pay attention, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God, in the Spirit of God, says Jesus is a curse. No one can say that. Paul later on says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. So this man uses, using Jesus' name to cast out demons and do his work is of the Lord. Another place in the Gospels, Matthew 12, 30, says that whoever is not with, uh, with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's clear this man was following Christ and serving faithfully. And Jesus Christ makes this point. In verse 40, he says, anyone who is not against us is for us. And although he doesn't make this point explicit, implicit, he makes this, this distinction between two groups. There are those that are for the Father. So in our first group, we have uh, group number one, we have those who are of the Father who do the good works set before them. And in the second group, there's this distinction that's made, and that there are those that are for Satan. And they do his evil works. There are these two groups. There are no others. There are both middle and between categories. There are only two. As believers, we would do well to understand who is for the kingdom of heaven and who is against us. 
Jesus Christ made a point of this in uh, John uh, chapter 9, if you want to turn with me very quickly. John chapter, uh, excuse me, John chapter 8, verses 42 uh, to 44. So again, if you're turning with me, John chapter 8, verse 42 to 44. It says this. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Jesus said to them, if you were, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This reminds me of a story um, that I heard, um, and I can't remember the origin, so if someone does know this, please let me know. But um, this is, the, as the story goes, there was a, a couple brothers uh, that were attending a church, um, brothers in Christ, and as the story goes, uh, one had a bone to pick with another, and, uh, and he said, uh, after the service, I'm going to deal with it, um, and he came, actually, it's fitting, it's about evangelism. Uh, he came up to him and he said, I, I don't like the way that you do evangelism. And then the guy receiving criticism said, well, okay, well, what's the problem? What is the issue? And, and he proceeded to lay down kind of a, a series of things that he didn't like. He didn't enjoy and he didn't find that were edifying to God. Some of it good, some of it not good. And then he said, okay, I understand that you may not, uh, may not like that. What would you suggest? What do you do? That was what the, uh, the brother receiving the criticism said to him. Um, the first guy uh, who brought the problems, the criticism said, well, I don't. I don't do it. I just don't like the way that you're doing it. And so humbly, this guy, the guy who's receiving the criticism stands back and he says, well, I like the way that I do it versus the way that you don't. Um, so, the, like I said, like you guys can bring up that story if you know it, but the reality is um, we need to know who is for us and who is not against us. We are not to, um, we need to be sure that who is for us that we are praying for and that we are encouraging. But we also need to know who's against us. For there are two groups, and we're going to look at the destination, the ultimate destination of both these groups in our second point. Because Jesus Christ has this point in mind. Jesus has a kingdom view of heaven and hell. And we would do well to know that as well, because we need to know who's for us. Like I said, that's in the second point. But before we get there, we're going to look at our last verse, uh, verse 41. Jesus makes it very clear that even the most humble of servants will receive their reward. Now, this isn't an earthly reward, um, as we might be quick to jump to, uh, but this is, a one, this is a reward that we are to receive in heaven. Uh, if you turn with me, or just want to listen, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 14, um, Paul talks about this reward, talks about uh, what this reward looks like. So again, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, picking up from there, it says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, again, building being serving, uh, on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, heat, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. He will receive a reward. The Lord is all-knowing. He's, all, he's omniscient, uh, omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. 
and he sees perfectly those who serve him uh, from heaven above. And he rewards in kind. So we can take that encouragement that our reward in, is in heaven. As we serve humbly, this is something that should encourage us not to be people pleasers, but to please our Father who art in heaven, who does see and reward in his perfection. But our point about spiritual pride, to jump back to this, is we need to notice the response of the disciples. This story, this reaction from John and the disciples in verses 38 to 41, is a direct result of unrepentant pride within them. They, they move from one source of pride to another. And in doing so, trying to overcorrect, they dig deeper into the pride or the sin of pride. They have not repented. So before we move on, we need to examine this onto ourselves. We, we turn this text inwards. And we focus and we say, where does this describe me? Where does this particular text bring to bear on my soul and what domain of my life is this true? Think of all the ways that pride affects what we do, our money, our work, our battle against temptation, sexual sin, idolatry, the battles against the flesh of popularity and praises of man, all the ways that we battle against sin. Where are we prideful? Where are we relenting God's power in favor of our own? So in other words, where are we overcorrecting? As believers, as blood-bought saints, as those who care to put sin to death, we do battle with flesh and temptation. Are we quick to become defensive when our sin is pointed out to us, when this finally comes to bear? And do we overcompensate? I'm going to pick on the kids again here. Uh, remember that saying I started to talk of the sermon. Uh, does anyone remember I can test if not, don't worry. Does anyone have a little bit? Okay, but just as sin, you remember it started. Just it goes like this. Remember, just as I in the middle of sin, so is the letter I in the middle of pride. So you guys need to remember that. Talk to your parents on the way home. That's your homework. This is application for us as believers, but also application for us as uh, as adults, as, as blood-bought saints. Our application that we can draw right now from this text is. Repent for true humility. We need to repent for true humility. This text is riddled with really good application already. Um, like I said, recognition and praying for brothers who are not, not directly tied to us. That is uh, one easy application. But, but before we get to all those other uh, good things that the text has to say, we first have to be willing and ready to accept this, and that is through humility. Before we reach that other door, we must first step through the door of Christ and be humble. 2 Corinthians 7. Pay careful attention. 2 Corinthians 7, or verse 10 says this. Just listen to the wording. For godly grief, godly sorrow, godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So that's godly grief and godly repentance, no regret. But on the, other, on the other hand, we have worldly grief. Paul continues, whereas a worldly grief, so in other words, fleshly grief, produces death. It does not cure the ailment of sin. So these apostles, they were feeling something. They were rebuked and they were feeling prideful. Their, their egos were stung. 
there was ungodly grief. There was worldly fleshly grief. And in their defensiveness, they overcorrect. And they, and they seek that the Lord would, would, condone, would condone their sin, would, would give it a pat on the back. And the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't do that. They had not yet repented of, the spirit, of their spiritual, of spiritual sin and pride. I think most people know here that, uh, um, that we are a competitive family. That's the Cortezes, the Cortezites. Uh, we're really competitive by nature. Uh, and actually, we like, uh, uh, you know, there's boxers, and we, you know, we, we like sports. Anyways, we compete a lot. I trained as a boxer for many years. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, and I realized not long after doing it that I didn't have too many brain cells to spare, so I stopped, and I focused on studying. Um, however, this is something I did. But you, you see some interesting observations when you're in the gym. And um, anyone who's pl played any kind of sport or any kind of uh, competitive field sees this and knows this. Um, that there are big egos. And there's a lot of pride to go around in these places. I mean, that's an easy place to spot them, but really it's everywhere. Um, and as it goes with any sport or any kind of competition, uh, sometimes it just isn't your day. What, what, what I would often see is that during the course of maybe, for example, a tough sparring session or something that, um, a tough exercise at the gym, usually it's sparring amongst two guys, uh, one guy would be doing well and the other guy would have to get pulled. Um, and eventually what would happen is, you're, as you're working on skills, the coach would pull you. Uh, probably no different than any other sport, and there would be a counsel and there'd be advice given. So one guy's getting walloped, the coach pulls him and gives him advice. Uh, one of two things happened. O only ever one of two things. Whenever that fighter or that competitor would step back into the ring, either that person would go in with a completely bruised ego and ignore the coach's direction, resulting in further beatings, or they would overapply their, their correction and proceed to uh, put a whooping on their fellow teammate. Remember, this is in the same gym. So either they would receive more beatings or they would just go the opposite end and Overapply and actually do harm to the other person. True humility is found in repentance. Only in repentance. And that repentance comes in prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Doing the work of self-examination, reading this text, to bear on our souls. We need to examine parts of our, um, parts of our lives, domains in which we have pride. Because we all have it. We need to take that pride, that sin. We need to bring that burden. That burden comes to the cross of Christ. We need to go on our knees and we need to confess it. We need to confess it that the Lord Jesus Christ would bear the load. Do away with it. Give it to him. We need to rely on him, on his friend, on the redeeming work of Christ. We cannot rely on our own. If we do, if we rely on our fleshly frame, and we attempt to correct any situation, either battles with sin and pride and, and death, we, we do all that we can to work within our own frame and, and forsake the power of the Holy Spirit. We fool ourselves and we delve further into that pride. And as our next point is going to demonstrate, the Lord takes this pride very, very seriously. So but before we get to our, uh, our second half of our text here, um, again, speaking of kids here, uh, this, this passage is an interesting one, obviously. Um, but it's interesting maybe to kids mostly because of how visual this passage is. The, just the visual elements and the, um, 
the hyperbole with which Jesus Christ speaks is it's very stark. When we think of uh, the humility of a child, um, they are much more vulnerable and sensitive to these kinds of things. And, uh, and kids also implicitly know this. Like kids just know they're vulnerable sometimes. Unless you're my nephew, for example. Um, things that adults might not be scared of, for example. Um, we might not be scared of things, but kids, um, they can be scared quite easily. Their fear is uh, of a lot more sensitive sense than ours. If you think, maybe adults and kids, not to linger on this too much, but if you could think of the scariest thing or things that used to scare you is when you were smaller, maybe. Um, you think about things a lot with the magic of movies and CGI and special effects. Um, people have gotten very creative in ways to, uh, to drive that out of you. Um, so in other words, generally speaking, things that appear scary today uh, might have been a little bit different than someone in the first century during the time of Jesus Christ as he walked. But this fear that Jesus Christ is going to teach us on, this, this fear that he's instilling upon us, uh, is not just fear for the apostles. This isn't just for the disciples of Christ during his day when he walked, but this is for the everyday believer now in this moment. And I'm not needlessly trying to scare anyone here, um, but the danger and the consequences of, of pride and of sin, this should scare us. And this is a healthy fear. So looking back at our text, back at our text, we're going to go to our second point here. Um, so the rest of our time is going to be spent on uh, verses 42 to 50. It's important to note that while the book of Mark is really short, you guys know that this is, uh, you, may, you may or may not know, uh, Mark is the shortest gospel of the four. Uh, however, there is moments where uh, the gospel of Mark gets special attention to certain sections that the others do not. This is one such um, occasion. Uh, so as we look at our point, we're going to look at the special details that, uh, that Mark gives that none of the other gospels give. Um, so this is our last point. Unre I think there's actually a type on the bulletin, my mistake. Uh, unrepentant pride has eternal consequences. So if you're taking notes from the bulletin, kind of. Unrepented pride has eternal consequences. So in this last section, as we, uh, as we look at the, at the fearful warning that Jesus Christ is going to give, uh, Mark is going to tie all these loose ends together to make one strong point against this sin of pride. He's driving all of this, chapter 9, the end of 9, to this point. In verse 42, Jesus references the child within their midst from earlier on in verses 35 to 37. If you remember, Jesus sat down. And he drew a child from among the crowd, and he sat with them and used them as an illustration. So verse 42 says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. This is a stark warning. And this child that Jesus Christ references from a very literal reading, does mean the child and children uh, like that, which is comforting. But it should also be known that, that this young child also symbolically does not just mean this little child, although they're included. It means young believers. It could also mean young believers or any believer truly that, that is young in spirit, this, this unknown man from, the, from verses 39 or 38 to 41. Him, him included. 
These are the young children that the Lord is pleased to call his own, that he's ransomed. And the Lord looks harshly upon people who would cause anyone to come to sin, especially the little ones. We need to look at some of the details of this verse. The literal translation of sin in this verse uh, quite literally means to stumble or fall. So it means to stumble or fall in the Greek. And this millstone that, uh, that Jesus Christ references, if you guys don't know what this is, it's like a giant round stone. You might see something out of like uh, the Flintstones. Or, but it was this giant motor pestle, if you can imagine that. This, this millstone would be tied to a donkey. And as this donkey would be forced to walk, this millstone would turn and grind wheat. And it would bring it to a fine powder. That's what this millstone would be doing. Imagine just a large mills or a motor pestle. And these mills and, and these millstones were, were very large. They needed a, a mule to pull them, which is a very strong creature, and could not be carried by the weight of man, at least not one. And this is what the Lord references as, as consequence for someone who brings sin upon a child or a young believer. We recently preached through uh, the book of Jonah. Actually, this is fitting. And we reflected on the agony that uh, he underwent as he sunk uh, within the depths of the sea. If you guys remember, uh, we went to Jonah uh, chapter 2. And this is, just listen to the distress. Just listen to the agony that Jonah undergoes in the water. So Jonah chapter 2 verse 1 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me deep into the sea, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over to me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is, these are words of agony that Jonah prays to the Lord. And if we go back to our verse, Mark 9, this type of death would be better for you than causing a little one to sin. This is Jesus Christ, by his own words, means that this is better for you than causing a little one to sin. This is a very dire warning. And it doesn't end there. So we're looking at the rest of the, of the chapter here, or the rest of the verse, in verses 42, 45, and 47. Jesus continues with his dire warnings, his, 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 uh, his hyperbole. He says this, um, the seriousness, seriousness of sin shouldn't be lost on us. Jesus Christ is making a very, very sharp point here. Verse 42, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, remove it. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. How many of us have watery eyes? Jesus Christ says, pluck out your eye in response to this sin. Now, what Christ is doing, Christ is using hyperbole, and it is figurative language. He does not literally mean that we are to do these things. After all, those of us who understand the grace of Christ, understand that the, 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 the danger of sin, know that no amount of self, uh, self-mutilation, self, any kind of work can, 
can ever atone for sin. None of this can atone for sin. So Jesus isn't saying that. That this is how we literally deal with sin. However, Christ is demonstrating a really severe point that, that sin requires a severe response. A complete turning away, a 180, from what is leading us to eternal destruction. We must be prepared to denounce sin and completely turn away from it. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, Flee sexual immorality. Full stop. Flee sexual immorality. Paul goes on. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul Washer, preaching on this uh, very text, said this, Why stay and fight something that the Lord has told you to flee from? Why stay and fight a fight you will not win? Like Joseph in the book, uh, the book of Genesis, when presented with the opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife, if you remember that story, he had a choice, and he made the choice to run. He, he chose to run so quickly, in fact, and so forcefully, that in the exchange, his clothing was ripped and used against him. And that quickly, that, that powerfully, that 180 about-face turn was the response that Joseph gave. And it was the correct one. If we clearly understand the present, the present dangers and consequences, but also the eternal consequences of sin and pride, this response is completely justified. The eternal consequences of God's judgment are too clear to cast aside. But we have to answer this question. We have the so what? Why the reason for such a stark warning? Why? Why is Christ so, um, so firm? Why is he so hyperbolic? Why is he, why is he really honing in on this, um, this point in particular? Because Jesus Christ is going to talk about hell in this, in this passage, as, uh, as we've come to know. So the word for hell in verses 43, 45, and 47 uh, is a Greek uh, word, again, or Gehenna. As it might be more pronounced. This word Gehenna uh, is a transliteration uh, of the place called the Valley of Hinnom. So this valley was found just south of Jer uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and within this valley, uh, dead animals, uh, filth, garbage would be sent there uh, to be disposed and, uh, and burnt. Uh, this was uh, essentially uh, a flaming garbage dump uh, where people would send all their waste and this, the fires were constantly burning, as it were, uh, just in this valley. Uh, and furthermore, the, the reason uh, for this place being a garbage dump, being used for such a, what might seem such unrighteous purposes to get rid of all this garbage, all this filth, um, wasn't just out of convenience, actually. Uh, but this place was chosen, um, not coincidentally, uh, but because it was considered a cursed land in the eyes of the Jews. It was a cursed land in, in Second Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles thirty-three six, chapter thirty-six, uh, thirty-three verse six. We read that the king of Israel at the time of Chronicles thirty-three, uh, the king Manasseh, offered child sacrifices, the most vulnerable of us, for selfish gain. Second Chronicles thirty-three six says. And he, Manasseh, 
burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Ammon, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And Jesus uses this to paint a horrible picture, horrible torment of fire. In Matthew, we read of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We read this, this, this imagery that Jesus Christ puts forward of hell being this place that uh, you would not wish on your worst enemy. And yet it exists, yet it must, yet it must exist. If we read verses 44, 46, 48, it says this, this crucial detail. It says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Some of you, uh, as I was talking about preparing this sermon, um, some of you know that I was tempted to preach out of a different translation this week. Um, because if you notice in your ESVs, it actually doesn't have 44 and 46 within the mainland. It's actually as a footnote. And I think that... Um, that is actually comes to us as a disservice. Uh, the reason why they don't do this, why it's not within the main, main line of the text, is because some of the earlier manuscripts don't have these verses included. But pastorally, there is value in repetition. There is so much value in this repetition. Isaiah 6.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is a very Jewish way of writing. Not just once holy, not just twice holy, but the holiest, the thrice holy God. This was a method that the Jews used to write with emphasis. And in our text, we see a similar emphasis as Mark writes in a very Jewish style. He says this in verse 44, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 46, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And finally in 48, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. As the best teachers will do, as some of you are in this room, emphasis is added to the most important things. Repetition, repetition. Things that are worth knowing are going to be repeated time and time again. And Jesus Christ cannot make this more clear. Sin and pride condemns you to an eternal fate. To put this matter bluntly, just as plain plain old English as I can say it, eternity means forever. This text makes this very clear. There are groups, there are more liberal theologians that will cling to an idea of what's called annihilationism. And this, depending on particular color or flavor of, of view, says that God in his judgment will annihilate sinners. And depending on the view, some maybe immediately or some after some time. But that eventually, that these sinners will be no more. They will cease to exist. And that only believers that are in Christ will reign with him. So in other words, hell is at most a temporary place. But in the end, um, sinners will all cease to exist. The problem with this view, among some of them, of the problems that we see, is that it gives a neuter view of hell and dulls the blade of God's judgment. So while people who hold to this view might look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, 
Or maybe 2 Peter 3, verse 7, where uh, the words destruction are, are, are used. There are others among other uh, of these proof texts. Uh, these theologians hold to this doctrine, people who hold to the view of annihilationism. Hold to these doctrines outside of the greater context of the Bible. That preaches that all men are appointed to die once, then comes the judgment. And then after that comes the enactment of that judgment, the consequences of God rendering his final verdict. But more importantly about this view is that it is, this view is most efficient because it stems from the very pride that Christ is preaching against this whole time. As sinners, a sinful man with limited capacity, limited capacity for love, for virtue, for goodness, for justice, we, in our sinfulness, we think we know the extent of evil when we rebel against God. This view inherently holds this view. It's built within. David Kingdom says this, and he puts it beautifully. He says, sin against the Creator is heinous to a degree utterly beyond our sin-wrapped imaginations, our ability to conceive of. Who would have the temerity or the boldness to suggest to God what the punishment should be? Shall not the judge of all the world do what is just? Pride and sin are vile to God and deserving of punishment. But what condemns one purifies the other. If our understanding of hell is as severe and well understood as it should be, then our view of grace should make us weep for joy. If hell is in the right place of understanding for every single person in this room, then our view of grace should, be, should make us leap for joy in our seats. And this is what Christ wants from us. This is what he desires for us. And he ends with this encouragement in, verse, in our last two verses. So we'll just turn there very quickly. Verses 49 and 50. They say this. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Verse 49 makes really clear that everyone will undergo fiery trials. The believers and unbelievers, no one is spared from this, especially in this life. However, to the believer, this fire purifies. Salt is a preservative. And in the old world, as Jesus Christ spoke to uh, people in the first century, salt was used as a main source of food preservation, one of the main methods by which you would preserve meats and food. Looking further back in the Old Testament, salt was often linked with sacrifices as well. For example, if you look at Leviticus 2.13, salt was used within the Levitical law. And as the fire consumed these sacrifices that the priests would lay upon the altars, what was left behind, the remnant, was a purification of the Israelites, a refinement for their sacrifices of sin. Looking practically, looking at even the world around us, the strongest of steels and metals, along with the most precious and brilliant diamonds and gemstones, are refined using the hottest of flames. The impurities lifted out of the substances 
and the elements that are put in these furnaces is burnt away, and what remains is a brilliant glow of refined materials and gemstones. And God desires to do this to you humbly as you serve him. Isaiah 48.10 says this. Behold, I have refined you. This is God speaking. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should I, should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Not as silver, not as, not as perishable, even something as valuable as silver. God does not refine us. But as something more valuable. As his people, he refines us. And this is how we apply this. This is how we apply this. As we look at verse 50, and this, and this concludes our, our, the main thrust of this message, throughout these moments of trials, through these moments where God is refining every single one of us, we ought to serve one another in humility. Serve one another humbly. This is how we apply this. This is how we deal with the battle of sin and pride. Having a Christ-like heart, serving each other humbly. A heart without pride, without the, the, the sin of pride, will take joy in, God, in what God is doing to carefully refine those he loves so dearly. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this. Sorry, I just got to find my face. So we do not lose heart. This is Paul speaking. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For by this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Within these trials, no doubt, that every single one of us within this room is facing right now. As these trials bear upon us, humble yourself and be salted before the Lord. Be at peace with one another. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all enter through the same doorway, cleansed by the same righteousness of the Lamb. As undeserving as we all are, we bring nothing to our salvation, only what, to, what made it necessary for Christ to die on that cross for us. And by knowing this, by humbling ourselves towards one another, and most importantly to God, we bring nothing to boast. We, don't, we cannot boast about anything. As conflicts arise in a sinful world dealing with sinful man among siblings, parents, and children, those in courtship soon waiting for spouses, husbands, wives, friendships, be salt to one another. And bear with one another with love. Be humble. This is what Christ demands of all of us. Fiery trials come and they will go. But in the midst of that, the Lord will refine you. And Christ isn't looking to leave you as you are, but he intends to make you better. More like his son. 
more like my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look to these trials, as we, as we conclude our text, as we bring this home, and not just at home, but in our relationships, our work, and on all facets of life, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have unity in Christ, not division. This does conclude our text. This concludes um, chapter 9. And um, I, I'm hoping that, I, that I, as I preach this text, I've come to bear me the weight of hell and sin and pride. But I've also, by God's grace, shown how merciful the Lord Jesus Christ is. Any saint, any blood-bought believer, any brother in this room knows just how sweet that taste is. Before we leave, I, can't, I cannot leave without addressing those currently walking on the path of eternal destruction. Before leaving here, I cannot address those who walk in unrepentant sin and do not address these things before a holy and righteous God. If I'm allowed even one Spurgeon quote this week, this is it. If I have to preach one. Many of you who do know me um, know just how much I love this quote. But you also know how terribly sad this quote makes me, how much it breaks my heart. If I get one quote, it's this. If you would sit in these seats and you hear these words right now, anyone who's sitting, you're listening to this sermon, listening to these words, and remain in any of the cross, if this is you right now as you speak, as, you, as you're listening, I am messenger from Christ. I'm we urge you, come to Christ. Spare yourself from an eternity of torment. Jesus Christ is no liar. His grace is sufficient, but also is his judgment. His judgment is also righteous and pure. Anyway, this is the quote from Spurgeon, and we'll close. Spurgeon says this. Just listen to these words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unborn and unprayed for. This is the heart of the believer. Go to Christ, go to him. Drink of the living waters and know what a thirsty soul feels like to receive the waters of grace.